millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Yeah. Sit down. It's sick of your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... <laughs> Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> G'day and welcome to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kinney, and this is, of course, the very first episode of this podcast that's ever been recorded under a federal Labor government. Quite a, uh, a momentous uh, thing, I guess. Uh, we don't change governments very often. Joining me today is Karen Middleton, Chief Political Correspondent for the Saturday Paper. Welcome back, Karen. Thanks, Mark. Really good to have you. And Malcolm Farr, former political editor of the Daily Telegraph and of News.com, and these days more often read in The Guardian and uh, in various other places around the place. Malcolm, great to have you back. Splendid to be here. Now, it was just such a fascinating thing, this this election. I mean, it was sort of turgid and tedious and, and all of that in a lot of ways. We saw plenty of commentary around that point that, you know, there wasn't a huge lot of sort of exciting ideas that were on the table. And Labor was, of course, running a, um, a very conservative electoral strategy, if I can put it like that, of, of minimising the number of areas of contest with the government and keeping the focus on the government. Um, and the result itself in the end, um, much more decisive, I suppose, than first appeared on the night. The night sort of started off and for a good deal of it. It, it really exhibited the same sort of feeling that it was not particularly clear sort of turbid waters of, of electoral dissatisfaction made it pretty hard to see what voters were actually saying. But, you know, with time, uh, it's turned out that it is quite decisive, Malcolm, in the sense of uh, what voters actually wanted, which is they wanted Morrison gone. Oh, for sure. And also it was an expression of, uh, I was going to say disenchantment, but it's more than that, hostility that's out there towards the two major parties, towards the ALP and the coalition parties. People just uh, believed they weren't getting their proper service from the parties. And obviously you take that out on the government and that factor plus Scott Morrison's personal unpopularity meant the government was gone. But we've got to keep remembering 
that Labor's uh, two-party vote was down, primary vote was down, uh, and there was a lot of attention paid, to the, obviously, to the independents and the Greens. Karen, a fair bit of that, of course, though, um, that low primary vote for Labor can be put down to some of those things that we've just been talking about, you know, the... the um, well, obviously, some dissatisfaction with with Labor, with the major parties, uh, the sense of there not being, uh, a, you know, a huge inspirational alternative uh, to the government. But there are some other things in play as well. Um, perhaps some strategic voting. I mean, you, it's unlikely to see the rise of all of these uh, these independents, for example, without that having an impact on the first preference vote around the place, uh, and and. And clearly some of the logic behind supporting those candidates is also a factor in terms of uh, what voters were trying to say. So voters might not have split so much on party lines as they traditionally have, as in some cases on gender lines. Uh, Yes, I think so. I guess we need to see the final figures to know exactly how much that is true. But uh, it certainly seems that women were sending a message to be to generalise there for a bit. I think Malcolm is right that there was a, an anti-two-party sentiment that was pretty clear. The caveat on that um, is that people did in teal seats, so-called, uh, vote tactically, I think. And so a number of people who, it seems, who would normally vote Labor in those seats on principle because they're Labor supporters even though Labor never has a shot at taking the seat, uh, seemed to have switched to vote independent because they believed that the independent could get rid of the Liberal incumbent where a Labor person couldn't. So that's naturally going to knock down the Labor primary vote a little bit. How much, we won't know until we can see the final results in all those teal seats and line up the Labor vote from 2022 against the Labor vote from 2019 and see how much of those people, how many of those people have swung away to the independent. But um, I, I think it would be wrong for Labor to think there's no message there for, for it, um, in, you know, as one of the two major parties. And certainly in Queensland, where people voted green um, in, in three seats in particular, in Queensland instead of voting Labor, there's clearly a message. The women um, dimension is important. It's one of the big issues that the teal independents, who mostly are women, uh, have been highlighting was the attitudes to women, women's inequality, um, and along with climate action and, and a national integrity commission, that was a key point that they were making. So, again, I think I think we can deduce that female voters have made their voices heard in quite a striking way. Um, when we saw those protests in the street and outside parliament a year ago, women and men made their attitudes known to the way things were being handled in relation to women in parliament and beyond, and I think that's happened again. Yeah, and that just on that strategic voting thing, I, I suspect that's right, and, and and of course you are correct that we do need to wait and see what the uh, where, where the votes were cast, what the numbers actually were, rather than just going on on sort of guesswork. But um, continuing at least uh, with with that sort of line of speculation, it seems to me fairly likely that uh, that you can say a couple of things. Uh, one that there was some strategic voting going on. Labor people, the more savvy ones, will have realised that it's important in those what became three-cornered contests between the co- you know, the Liberal, uh, the Labor Party, the standard sort of uh, bilateral contest contest that exists between them in in those seats, uh, and this uh, new independent. 
that it's important that the Labor vote came in third rather than coming in second. So getting a high primary vote for the independent was critical in terms of then being able to direct preferences from the Labor pile towards electing that independent. Absolutely critical that that occurs because if it doesn't, if it goes the other way where the Labor vote exceeds the independent on primaries, then it becomes the independent's second and third preferences that start getting distributed. And of course, they can spray anywhere and probably in most cases are going to re-elect the incumbent Liberal. So if you've got that happening in a number of seats around the country, quite a number of seats, and probably in more seats around the country than than were deliberately or explicitly listed as teal seats because there was just this general energy around the election on that question. It may well be that there is um, something, some sort of uh, contribution in Labor's low primary vote there. The big question, though, remains with the Liberal Party, will those voters snap back, as Scott Morrison might say, um, uh, to the Liberal Party or will this, all this family feud keep going? Uh, and will voters and the successful independents sort of say to each other in three years' time, hang on, this was pretty good, this worked. Uh, we, we had an influence. I think I'll, I think I'll stay independent. I think I'll stay voting independent. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see what over the next three years the Liberal Party does to reconcile, uh, with the, with those, uh, with those, uh, rogue family members. Yeah, well, that's that's a very good point. I mean, Karen, uh, we saw with Karen Phelps in Wentworth that uh, just because you win in one of these seats doesn't guarantee that you can hold on to the seat, although she won it in a by-election and that may have made that easier. But um, but we also know that good quality uh, independents do have a history of consolidation in those seats if they really work them hard and really deliver for those electorates. And that's actually the really, I mean, Malcolm touched on, on this just then. That is one of the really great problems for the Liberal Party in a structural sense going forward, which is that these, these independents are self-selecting as high quality people. They're, they're very, very often professionals. They know exactly what they're doing. They've run extremely slick campaigns, albeit with some assistance. But I think prima facie, there's, there's good, good reason to believe that they're going to be the sort of independents that are going to be hard to remove in just one electoral term unless they just do a hopeless job. And that poses big problems for the Liberal Party because it seems to me it's highly unlikely that the Liberal Party, even with the, with the Nats, can get to 76 seats in the future without getting these teal seats back in their column. Yeah, and a lot of the women who are running as teal candidates are professional women in in um you know high income areas and they should be liberal party members they should be liberal women they should be candidates for the liberal party but they're not and the danger as malcolm rightly says is that people get used to the idea that they have a teal independent and they think that's a pretty good thing um history tells us if an independent gets entrenched for more than one term then it's really hard to get rid of them long term we saw ted mack in north sydney held North Sydney for quite a long time. We've seen, you know, Bob Catter uh, and the like, Andrew Wilkie. I mean, they are long-term independents and they have only increased their margin there. So it's a real danger for the Liberal Party, I think, people getting entrenched. And and the risk of that is all the greater for the fact that the key issues that these independents are campaigning on, the National Integrity Commission, 
greater climate action and and recognition, better recognition of women and their contribution are all things the Labor Party agrees with them on. So there there will be presumably uh, these issues addressed very quickly in the first term of a Labor government. So those independents will claim credit for that, for having uh, contributed to that success by getting rid of Liberal MPs. And that is, you know, logic would tell you only likely to make the people who voted for them more enthusiastic about voting for them again. And I, I do think the Karen Phelps example is not quite a perfect analogy because she was in a contest, as you say, Mark, in a by-election where Malcolm Turnbull had retired. There was a lot of anger in Wentworth at the fact that he was overthrown. So there was a big protest vote against the Liberal Party in that by-election on that point. And while Karen Phelps certainly made a contribution in the short period she was there, people were prepared once it was a contest where that had passed, that anger had passed a little and, and it was back to a general election. They seemed clearly prepared at that point to endorse the Liberal Party. I think the mood has changed and they've actively chosen to throw out a Liberal member now and put in an independent. And then I go back to what I just said. I think the the risk is, as Malcolm quite rightly says, in the longer term that these people get, get entrenched and then the Liberal Party has a massive battle on its hands. It's got a reckoning it has to face up to about its own uh, internal tensions between the left and right that it, that it just has not resolved and it has not represented the centre. And the centre in Australian politics is where battles are won and lost. Yeah, that's that's the case. That's where you've that's where you've got to compete for that uh, that mother load of votes, if I can put it like that, uh, in the great Australian centre ground. And 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 in a sense, the Liberal Party hadn't just taken that area for granted, particularly with its inner urban so-called blue ribbon blue ribbon jewels. But it started actively insulting these people. I mean, uh, the, the campaign against the independents uh, was a ca- as much a campaign against the people who were who were flirting with the idea of supporting the independents. They, they, they were basically being abused as if they were dupes and morons for 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 falling for this uh, subterfuge. So, I mean, remember Morrison's comment about a year ago to a mining conference where he said, "Net zero won't be determined in the dinner parties, cafes, and wine bars of the inner cities." Um, these were their voters they were talking to. Um, That's yeah. it's just absurd. It's moronic. Uh, look, uh, and remember um, you know, the former National Party leader who uh, who just characterised uh, uh, people in cities as goat cheese eaters. Apparently, this was an insult. <laughs> I wasn't. I, I wasn't quite uh, up to it myself. But look, um, <laughs> the, the um, it, it, reading the Australian today. It, it is unrelenting, the attack on these candidates. And as you say, particularly now, now that, that they've been elected, on the people who elected them, on the voters, calling them, essentially calling them idiots. There's, there's an op-ed in the Oz. Where I, I, just, I just love this. Uh, an op-ed <laughs> in the Oz says, rebellion of the top 1%, anti-working class, um, uh, uh, vote, anti-working class vote for the elite. Which apparently is is a, a disqualification, but on the front page, there's mm. a news story, alleged news story, classifying these these uh, independents, tertiary educated, affluent, uh, liberal, small l liberal. Uh, now, what what gets me is that the, the this is the Australian's base, isn't it? That's their reach. The, the advertising <laughs> salesmen and women of the Australian would be going to. Um, Adv- potential advertisers and say, hey, look at our readership. This is marvellous. They're tertiary educated. They're affluent. They've got moderate political views. They're just your sort of people. You should advertise with us. 
But instead, the Australian is saying that this garbage should not be tolerated. They're just elites. God, spare me. Grow up. And and how far has the, the, the Liberal Party been dragged to this kind of abandonment of its own foundations by the advent of partisan media, by the sort of influence of it? Because it seems to me that, um, it, you know, this this hunger they almost have, uh, and, and you can see it happening in real time, really. You could watch it happening over recent years with uh, new MPs essentially making their name on Sky After Dark, uh, sitting there as commentators and, and, and sort of feeding the anger machine and so forth and becoming part of this and establishing their, their, their media chops and then making it into the, into the ministry and so forth. But you have this kind of – this whole government really which then starts to become enthralled to this relatively boutique um anger machine on the right um and it's it just leads them away from the the bulk of their own voters well there's certainly a debate being had in the public domain on social media and beyond about the way the media traditional media in particular covered this election i think now whether that debate is properly held in the media itself is another question but there's certainly there's certainly some horror at at some of the hysteria at some of the aggressive questioning some of the ridiculously unbalanced questioning that went on throughout the campaign and the and the level of control that was exercised um by the the coalition side um and shutting out of particular organizations and encouraging of others leaking of material to certain organizations you know, fascinating to me that on the day of the election there was a report in the Australian newspaper about a, the arrival of an asylum seeker boat. Well, Deirdre Chambers, what a coincidence. I mean, <laughs> to, to quote an old movie, um, you know, uh, whether this actually gets adequately examined is a question, but there certainly is a conversation to be had about about partisanship in media and about the the, you know, potentially cosy relationships between very wealthy media organisations and particular political parties and certainly, and it, you know, it hasn't only been one political party in the past. We've certainly seen Labor governments cosying up to to influential media in the past. Whether that continues under this government will be interesting after the sort of scorching treatment that the Labor um, then opposition received at the hands of mostly you know, the, the Murdoch mostly media, frankly, um, it'll be interesting to see whether they revert to old behaviour and have to cosy up again or whether they are more circumspect about their attitudes to some of those big media organisations. Yes, well, clearly um, within the, there's a debate to be had within media and uh, Mark McGowan, the WA Premier, fired a very, very well-worded, I thought, uh, salvo into the, um, the conventional uh, practice of uh, the Canberra Press Gallery um, as he witnessed it up, up up close when Albanese was campaigning in the West and the and the WA Premier attended a number of press conferences with him, I'd encourage people to have a look at that. You can find it on on Twitter and probably in a number of other places as well. Um, it is one version of events, but uh, I think a lot of I think a lot of what he says will resonate reasonably well with anyone who was watching some of those press conferences over time. Just before we go to a break, to, just to st- uh, finish off with this uh, discussion about the Liberal Party's um, internal debate, and this sort of synthesises the point about subscription television and so forth, I saw um, Senator Alex Antic um, on 
on Sky News after dark sometime, uh, and he was um, he, he he was responding to his own Senate colleagues' comments earlier that day. That is Simon Birmingham on Insiders when Birmingham had listed off a few things that they'd got wrong, including drawing out the same-sex marriage debate and 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 the the huge culture war they had over climate and not not proceeding with the national energy guarantee and so forth. And Antic, this is a guy from the same party, the same Senate team, Birmingham's his senior senator, comes on and says he's never heard so much rubbish in all his life and then says there's only one way for the Liberal Party to read the election result and that is to step firmly to the right. That uh, and, 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 of course, you know, his interlocutors there agreed that this was the clear message of the election campaign <laughs> that they've got to move to the right. Um, how, how many right-wing independents were elected again? No. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, Clive Palmer's uh, uh, bilious attempt at uh, swamping the election achieved exactly zero, apart from driving everyone nuts. It I was, think the legalised marijuana party look as though they've outpolled Clive Palmer. Across the country, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> right, Who's the dope now? Yeah. Oh. Oh. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, but, but I mean, you know, the the whole point of the teal independence campaign removing moderates was that moderates have not succeeded in the Liberal Party to stop it from moving to the right. So Precisely. out of frustration, they have targeted the moderates, but that does not mean that moving to the right was what they wanted um, nope. or what the country wanted. No, no, the, the it, it's a very good point. I mean, what the voters have actually clearly voted for is a step to the left, a step to toward the centre and and to a more progressive set of positions. That is the... If, if, of all the other things you can say about this election, that is one of the clear trends that you can make for the way votes have been cast. Just very quickly, the problem with the Liberal Party is that, that process called the normalisation of the extremes. And it's the right wing has had so much say in the party, it's pretending it's the centre. It's not. These uh, these these independents were more representative of the centre, that uh, great motherload, as you called it, uh, political motherload, than these people were, and to go further to the right simply doesn't make sense. Hmm. No, that would seem to make sense to me, though. Um, thanks very much. We'll just take a quick break and be back in a moment. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Uh, now, we were talking a little bit, uh, perhaps more and more about the Liberal Party than uh, that they deserve to be talked about, really, given that they've just been turfed out, because the really big story of the election campaign, of course, is the change of government. 
success of Labor in forming that government. And as we record this, the new Prime Minister and Foreign Minister have jetted off to Japan for a meeting of the Quad. Uh, they've, uh, they're off to a flying start, as I've seen reported about eight times in different uh, media. Uh, and, you know, there, there are many things that are going to be happening. Um, Karen, I suppose this touches a bit on what we were talking about in terms of the media, but it wasn't a good campaign at a personal level for Anthony Albanese. That is to say, he didn't he didn't convey uh, the sort of command of the process that even the Prime Minister of the day seemed to do, but it didn't seem to matter, did it? It's interesting. You're right. I think the biggest problem that Anthony Albanese had was his public presentation. Partly, I think that was a, a bit of a downside legacy of this decision to minimise the big policy announcements and to therefore minimise the controversy and the opportunity to be attacked and exploited. What that means is if you're not putting forward large ideas that will be dissected and scrutinised, then you're not facing active scrutiny. And so he really hadn't had the experience of the scorching that we talked about earlier, uh, criticisms and, and questioning from media that, he got on the election campaign from day one. And setting aside whatever criticisms we might make about some of that, um, it, it is legitimate to scrutinise and question a candidate for the for the prime ministership. And so I'm not suggesting for a minute that it wasn't legitimate to scrutinise him. It was, and he didn't do very well on that first day. And he played right into the suggestion that the coalition and Scott Morrison were making, that he wasn't up to it, that he was hesitant, that he wasn't certain. And I think he he improved through the campaign, but that was still a problem. And I guess it was it was a bit of a wince moment that he, um, when he was off with COVID nineteen for a week, his party's standing seemed to go up. Um, he managed to get through to the end of the campaign um, with a couple more stumbles, but but he wasn't ultimately punished for those in a major way. I mean, his party has still clearly won the election, and I think what went is in his favour was partly that there was a view that built up that he was unfairly being attacked or that the balance in the attack was not even. Now, there wasn't balance, that there wasn't the same attack against the Prime Minister. I did observe when I was – I travelled on both campaign trails for half a week in the last fortnight, half a week each, and on the Prime Minister's trail I did observe at one point the morning after his uh, – the day after his um, campaign launch when he announced his latest housing policy that he was sitting there talking to some retirees with notes on his lap and he couldn't rem remember the details of his housing policy and was having to check his notes because he was forgetting them. And I was observing there was absolutely no questioning or attack from any media uh, colleagues there about that. So it wasn't an even level of scrutiny. But I think people in the end looked at Anthony Albanese and said he was more authentic. And so in some ways the sort of the bumbling and stumbling uh, possibly went in his favour because people said, well, it's less artificial and more genuine and maybe we've got some hesitation about strengths and certainty, uh, but but maybe we don't have as much hesitation about um, genuineness and authenticity and commitment, and that seems to have served him well. Whereas, I think Scott Morrison's messaging, which was like a wall of words, and and very he was very good at, at flipping every question into a message that he wanted to give. Super good at that, um, and picking and choosing who he took questions from very forcefully. That ended up looking 
a bit artificial uh, and people didn't like it so much. Yeah, a bit too slick. I, I, I agree. I think there's a there's a and there's a sense that he had an answer for everything all the time. And 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 you know, I put that in a sort of a pejorative sense. Like, you know, when someone says, Oh, you got an answer for everything, they they're, they're not complimenting you. Um and there was that sense about his attitude, not just what he said, but the way he said it. Uh, you know, his, his command of things was was almost a sort of a, a theatrical device uh, that uh, I think people started to see through during the campaign. I think one of the interesting things, Malcolm, was uh, you sort of you got this kind of window into the direct relationship between voters and the, this political process, this political choice, when we had those various debates. And I think, I think it'd be fair to say that those of us who spend all of our time watching politics and and trying to parse the details as they occur, in some ways we become the least expert in being an ordinary person observing a uh, a political choice ab initio, you know, like for the first time, and um, and so. I, I'll confess. I'll look at some of those debates and think Morrison's doing better than Albanese, and then then watch the the public juries at the end of it score it decisively in the other direction, and and I saw that as a kind of a you know reminder to me that you know I don't I might know a, a few facts and figures about politics and have a bit of history and all that, but it doesn't mean I know the public mind any better than anyone else, and perhaps worse. Yes, that, that's an issue. We're going to have to uh, deal with it. I'd suggest, uh, I mean, how how plugged in are we? Uh, you know, if, if some of the political parties aren't that uh, aren't, aren't that uh, hooked up with voters, uh, maybe we've got a problem as journalists as well. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with with Karen's uh, analysis of the two campaigners. Um, the authenticity. Uh, Anthony Albanese's authenticity seemed to increase um, the more flashy and desperate Scott Morrison's campaign became. And uh, also some of our colleagues have noted, some even applauded, uh, that Scott Morrison was much better at the non-answer to question than Anthony Albanese. And uh, um, that's a... that, that's a remarkable thing to be credited with by a journalist, but anyway, it it, it yeah. did happen. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, I, I, look, Anthony, Anthony Albanese has never been short of self belief, but it, uh, in promoting or presenting that confidence has often been a problem for him. Yeah, and I think that over the six weeks, he learned a lot. And uh, well, you know, twenty five years ago, he was a scruffy kid from the suburbs. Now he looks like he's stepped from the front page of GQ magazine. He's, and uh, has. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. And, and uh, I, I think he learned uh, to be more confident in public in just those six weeks while Scott Morrison tended to deteriorate into um, serial stuntsville, um, which culminated to me in that display of pointless aggression when, uh, when he... Um, uh, knocked over a seven-year-old kid on a soccer pitch. Um, uh, I, I think punters quickly came to recognise that this bloke is all slogans and uh, announceables and uh, and uh, picture opportunities and not much else. And a terrible thing to happen when you've just said you're a bulldozer as well, isn't it, to just bulldoze <laughs> well, over a kid? That's, that's uh, the point yes. I was going to make, Mark. It's a, it became the 
the grand metaphor, didn't it, for the, yeah. for the campaign? And in fact, it became the Mark the Mark Latham handshake moment for Scott mm. Morrison. Looking back on it, you suspected that might be the case at the time, and now it really looks like that. The moment where he he was it said he wasn't a bulldozer, and then he ploughed over a small child, uh, you know, in circumstances where he really should have been a lot more careful. And yeah, yeah it, it said everything about about the state of that campaign. It did, and and that was the that was what a few people said to me. You know, old campaigners for, through the years uh, made the point. When things, when the wheels start falling off, stuff happens to you that is just bad luck, you know, and it all seems to fit, fall in the same direction. And, and we'd already seen Morrison start talking about, you might not like me, but, you know, you've got to still vote for this government, which told us, um, what their focus group testing was actually showing up, that they had a real problem with him. And then that hardened into, um, I'm going to change. I'm going to change and be different because I can be a bit of a bulldozer. It was a classic Clayton's apology as well. It was like saying, I'm sorry I've been so effective at managing everything and that uh, has, mm. me- means I haven't had time to have a chat with you. But but broadly <laughs> speaking, you know, that's, that's because I've done such a bloody good job. Um, mm-hmm. That was the message there. And I think people just saw, saw through all this subterfuge and then, and then the, you know, the actual bulldozer moment and so forth and just thought, oh, please, you know, um, enough mm. of all this. Um, look, in, in the few moments we've got left, because uh, we keep sort of going back to the problems on the coalition side, can I just get your thoughts, both of you, on, I mean, we can't talk about, you know, all, all the different challenges that Labor faces. We know there's a big budgetary challenge and so forth, but just on a, on a key issue like climate change, because we know it was such a, a big factor in this election. Some people have even gone as far as to say that we finally had our first climate change election uh, result, and even though it wasn't strongly on the ballot on either labor or liberal side it was um it was very much in the in the teal campaigns and very much in the rise of the greens and and probably in a, in a lot of voters minds around the country i wonder given that uh interested in the thoughts of both you both of you uh, perhaps you first karen on uh what what level of flexibility labor has around this climate change question it had a more ambitious policy than the coalitions, but not as ambitious as the Teal candidates and as the Greens want and as probably many voters want. Given that given that Labor has just been elected in a vote that has been so strongly pro-climate action, does that give Labor some flexibility to be a bit more ambitious again, uh, particularly if we also include into that uh, Albanese's links with uh, the Joe Biden administration and their global ambitions to, you know, really sort of give this some energy and drive it forward? Theoretically, yes, it does give them some flexibility, but I think there are a few things to say. Um, they will be very mindful of bringing the population with them. The thing that has that has prevented any action on climate change over the last, what, 15 years or something that we've been talking about this and not going anywhere has been the the seeding and encouraging of community division and of not bringing the community with them. So I think they they recognise that they will have to move carefully to make sure that they bring the community with them. And so going too hard and beyond what they've said, they would be reluctant to do, I suspect. And, in fact, we've heard from Treasurer Jim Chalmers already subsequent to their swearing in suggesting you know that they're that they're not prepared at this stage to be going any further but they are clearly emphasizing climate action anthony albanese in going to tokyo and has made the point that that is one of the key issues on the table for him in those talks with three other world leaders alongside national security he's making a statement about there being a, a new government in town and a different attitude to climate action 
He wants to line up with President Joe Biden of the US and and work more closely in in that endeavor. So, you know, slightly conflicting messages in the big picture. Yes, we're all there, gung ho, off we go. And and on the on the fine detail, steady as she goes. Be careful, we don't want to terrify people who've just voted for us. And I certainly know that Anthony Albanese has in his mind a second term of office. He's told me that I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago and he said his plan not only for getting into office and being in office was to retain office because the things he wants to do, some of them will take more than one term. So he is thinking longer term and that will affect how ready he is to go out really hard beyond where people are expecting him to go on climate change. And that might run him up against the Greens and even some of the Teals in the short term. Yes. Malcolm? I, I think the issue of climate change uh, within the broad electorate has, has uh, changed shape over the past three or four years because of the lived experience. Right? You know, it, it, it's something that people have seen happen rather than uh, just being, you know, uh, out of the corner of their eyes, seen a scientific debate and you know, great bales of paper from uh, a United Nations committee. We've seen bushfires, we've seen floods, we've seen all sorts of uh, changes in agriculture, vineyards having to move south because um, the current areas are getting too hot for the grapes to do their job. Um, people are aware of this, plus the benefits of, of uh, renewable, uh, renewable energy. Uh, and so I think there was one. That's one aspect that highlighted climate change this uh, election, plus, of course, the campaigning by the independents. What will happen next uh, with Mr Albanese is going to be interesting. It all depends, I guess, in large part, what happens in the Senate. Uh, we don't know the makeup of the Senate yet, uh, and we don't know uh, how the Greens would function there. But uh, I would presume that Adam Bant, the Greens leader, who will be in the in the lower house, of course, uh, will be a more moderating factor on his party he will he'll be prepared to talk to uh, uh, the new prime minister and uh, make sure the things are not only effective in terms of uh, uh, dealing with climate change but are effective in terms of taking um, uh, the folks out there with with the politicians with the policy uh, and that's going to be a very interesting process um, if we can assume that the the labor party will have control of the house of reps um, the debate there will be interesting, but in the end, it might depend what happens in the Senate. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting mm. point, and uh, I suppose a good one to end on because it it it, it raises what both of you said raises the um, the responsibility, the the opportunity for Labor to learn from its past mistakes in this, in managing the politics as well as the policy, but also uh, as you make the point there, Malcolm, a chance for the Greens to learn from their role in the demise mm. of the CPRS the first time around and what that mm. unleashed after that. And you can have mm. an argument with a Green any time you like whenever you want to raise that, and I'm open yep. for them all. Um, yeah. <laughs> thank you very much, Malcolm Farr and Karen Middleton. Pleasure, sir. Thanks, Mark. It's been really terrific having having you on. And uh, as I say, this is a historic democracy sausage, the first one recorded in the new social democracy of Australia, uh, <laughs> as we'll see it unfold. Uh, that's it for Democracy Sausage this week. I did advertise that uh, Maria Teflaga would also be with us, and she was right up until about a minute before we recorded when she uh, suddenly had to go away and deal with a, a, a responsibility. So uh, she was an apology, uh, and I apologise to you for her not having her uh, 
excellent input into this, but I uh, hope you've enjoyed the discussion and we'll be back. There's plenty more to talk about in politics in, uh, in the coming weeks and months and we'll be looking forward to covering it all. So thanks for being with us and talk to you again next week. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. $15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.